Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Annie. And I'm Turtle. And this is a podcast where we bring different worldviews together into conversations about science in Indian country. All right. We are back with another episode of the Indian Science Show. Unfortunately, Annie isn't here with me today. She is on the other side of the continent, but we're still working together. We're still collaborating, and we decided to go and just keep on rolling with the episodes as much as we can. It's challenging, but with every challenge comes good lessons, as long as you're open to learning them. So we're learning a lot about how to work together across the country, and with this episode, though, I interview Neil Patterson, Jr., He's a member of the Tuscarora Nation, which is a part of the larger Haudenosaunee, or Six Nations, as other people may know them. And he's grown up here in New York and very similar to my childhood, just loved the forest, loved being out there fishing and hunting and learning in that way, and then eventually ended up in science, ended up in academia, and brought all of those lessons to that area of his learning. And so we talk about all sorts of cool things from his childhood experiences with fishing and hunting to some of his experiences getting into college and how he struggled with the different aspects of learning what it means to be an academic. And then also some of his experiences with teaching and how profound some of the realizations you can have can be if you are engaging with the land and with young people and just seeing how certain challenges can bring about really profound learning experiences. So I'm really glad to finally have him on. We've wanted to get him on the show for over two years now, basically since we first met him. And that gets me thinking of a conversation we had off air about the words we choose. And so it was really interesting to see the words he chose and how he thinks about and how he sees some of these really important topics like the role that indigenous people can play in the current social and political issues, but also how we learn and how academic learning is so different from the learning he was used to growing up. And so it was a pleasure to have him on. I hope you guys enjoyed this. It was a lot of fun. We we had some laughs. We got serious a couple of times, but overall, it was a really good conversation, and I was really glad to have the opportunity to interview him. So sit back, maybe grab some tea. It's a little bit of a long one, or coffee, if you're a coffee drinker. I really love water, so water's an option too, but relax and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome. It's good to be back here in Syracuse, and today I have a guest on the show that I've been wanting to have on here for a long time, almost since the very beginning. Since then, we've had many great conversations together, and I've learned a lot about just what's going on here locally and the history and all sorts of amazing things, and so it's a pleasure to have you on today, Neil. Thank you, Nella. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Yes, you're welcome. (laughs) And thank you again. So before we get going into some of the questions that I have, I would like to give you the opportunity to just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about where you come from. And and I would really love to hear one of your favorite memories as a Mm, child. mm. 
Sure. So yeah, I'm Neil Patterson Jr. I'm from Tuscarora. I'm a citizen of the Tuscarora Nation. Uh, this is out in right now, Western New York, um, near Niagara Falls. Um, I grew up, uh, you know, on the reservation, uh, with a really great loving family, um, who allowed me to roam in the woods, um, quite a bit actually. And, uh, that's probably some of my earliest favorite memories is just heading out for the day and not coming back until dark and, uh, being out, you know, basically trying to find water um, because at some point I became infatuated with fishing and just mm. going fishing. And so that's probably when I was probably about eight or so, eight or nine. I went with a buddy, caught my first fish, brought it home. It rotted on the porch <laughs> outside. Oh, um, man, I did the same thing. <laughs> and... uh yeah, so I, I ever since then it was just a quest to find water and to catch fish. Um and every chance I did, it, you know, I was down at the river, I was riding my bike to Bonds Lake and uh even looking around in streams looking for crayfish. Um damming up streams. I had that weird tendency. I don't know if every <laughs> kid has that, but you just yeah. want to like make a deep pool in a stream so you start putting rocks and Oh yeah. Yeah, I've done that too. It teaches you a lot about like how water flows and you, you can, yeah. you know, it's really interesting when you're a kid, you're thinking, where, where is all this water coming from and where is it going? And I think there's a great old National Film Board of Canada film about this, a little boy who puts a canoe in the water in the Great Lakes and it goes all the way out to the ocean. And uh, hmm. I used to watch those films as a kid too, like National Film Board of Canada, awesome resource if you're out there and you want to look on their website. They have great films about indigenous knowledge. And wow. I don't think I've heard of that. I'll yeah. have to check that out. And we'll, we'll link that in the show notes for anybody else curious about that. Cool. Cool. And so it's the National Film Board of Canada? Yeah. Yeah. I've actually used it in classes. Um, they have a great uh, movie about building a birch bark canoe. And you see a nice. lot of, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a several months long endeavor. Um and probably even a lifelong endeavor to figure out which tree to use, yeah. you know, and to figure out the type of bark you need for, uh, this was up in Cree territory, up in James Bay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Cool. So, you know what, those, that's very similar to some of my favorite memories as a kid is going out and fishing and then having that heartbreak of finding a rotten fish in your backpack <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then just, yeah, damming up little cricks and, <laughs> realizing like it's way way harder than you would than you would have first imagine because that water it it really doesn't like to do what you want it to do <laughs> yep yeah it's a part of the the wisdom that water can teach us True. a lot about is that as soon as you try to make anything a certain way nature has a way of getting around your desires mm-hmm. and that's a beautiful lesson i think so, so this is the Indian Science Show, and I would really love to. So, I think you and I have very similar experiences with science, where mm. we grew up being naturally curious, and in a lot of ways practicing that indigenous science from a very young age, and then got into science later in life and realized, wow, this is really fun. So, how did how did you get into science? Why did you decide to take a, the career path of science? Well, I was in high school and, you know, when you're a, you're a res kid that goes to a predominantly non-native high school, 
uh, it can be a tough environment. Um, I think, you know, there's maybe a class of 20 of us out of 300 plus students that were native. And, mm. um, so I didn't like it. Uh, I enjoyed playing sports. Um, I enjoyed lunch and gym. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I actually took a liking to some some math and science a, a little bit. Couldn't stand chemistry. Still don't get chemistry fully. Um, but uh, I basically wanted to quit high school. I said, "I'm done with this." Um, told my parents, "I'm I'm done." Right, right around tenth grade, it was just so tough for me socially and even academically. Um. I said, I, and furthermore, I don't even want to go to college. Why would I want to continue this classwork, sitting in a classroom all day? And so my mom said, what, what do you want to do? And I said, I just want to hunt and fish all day long. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's it. I don't have anything other desire than to be outside hunting and fishing. And she said, oh, well, you know, you could go to school and learn about that stuff. Hmm. I said, well, I don't want to take people hunting and fishing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if they want to go yeah. and we want to go together, I'm all for it. I'm down. But I did not want to guide people. And that was the only career I thought was an environment. Yeah, me too. Um, was being a guide for some reason. Maybe it's because we're Indians or something. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I, I know when I was about 16 or 17, my bro and I were like, man, we love doing this. It's very, very similar, just being out in the mountains, hunting mostly fishing he didn't really hunt much uh, i don't think i've ever been hunting with him actually but we tried to think how can we do this for a living how can <laughs> yeah. we just be out in the forest and get paid to be out here and the only thing that came to mind was guiding yeah uh, being an outfitter and they don't have the most stellar reputation among natives <laughs> where i'm from mm. yeah, we don't have many we have a lot of fishing guides um in the east mm -hmm. being on the great lakes um actually have a some good friends that do that and seem to enjoy it. Um, but the other career I actually thought and knew about as a kid growing up being a Tuscarora citizen and hunting and fishing on the land was the, the conservation officer, the game wardens. Oh, yeah. And I knew that there was guides and game wardens, and that those are the people who worked outside. <clears throat> and I thought, I don't want to ever bus people for hunting and fishing. I don't want to be a police force in hunting and fishing. And my mom said, well, you could actually learn about, you know, the environment that you love, you know, and actually learn about how hunting and fishing work with the environment. And I thought, you, there's such a thing, you know, and I had never thought of environmental science at all up until that point. Mm -hmm. And she picked up a flyer on my air hockey table, I'll never forget it. And she said, here's a whole college that's dedicated to environmental science and it's in Syracuse. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, there's a course in, you know, ornithology and there's a course in, you know, little, yeah. you know, advertisements on the, on the flyer you get in high school. I thought, oh, what the heck? I'll apply. And, um, senior year came around, I applied, um, Told him what a poor Indian I was, you know, from the res and needed my education. And yeah, and, yeah, that, uh, that story works well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I got in, and uh, my parents brought me here to Syracuse. And uh, yeah, I guess the story's still continuing. I'm still here, <laughs> mm. um, but it was really through my mother's guidance and and. And people in my family who supported the idea of going to college that 
led me to Western environmental science. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it was great. Um, I found there were other people in my situation that, uh, like you, Luja, that, you know, have that passion for the outdoors and just want to be outside, but also very curious about the natural order of things. And, um, all the knowledge here at ESF is, is pretty impressive. So. Yeah. Wow. That's really fascinating how my mom's the reason I ended up in college also, mm. but in, in a different way. When, when I was a kid, I knew I was going to college because she told me you're going to college. And even, even beyond that, she, it was always the assumption that I'm going to get my PhD someday. So it was just mm. a value I was raised with, even though I didn't even know what that meant. Mm. And I didn't really value it. Even when I got into college, I'm like, oh, I don't really want to do this. So I went down the money route and tried to make money because I thought, well, I can still go hunt and fish. I don't need to do that for my career. Turns out that I had, no, it didn't work out very good. <laughs> so I switched around and eventually ended up in environmental science. So that's, that's interesting because it's similar, but very almost opposite because my mom was a scientist and she drilled it into my head and into my heart that I am going to be going to college, even a scientist. I just didn't become the kind of scientist she wanted me to become. Yeah. And back home, I was the first in a pretty large extended family to, to, to even, well, I should say several people attempted to go to college. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but I was probably the first graduate in a, in a long time in our extended family. So, you know, my parents nor my grandparents on both sides and back who knows how long had any college education at, mm -hmm. all, at all. Um, just wasn't common, you know, mm -hmm. back when I was growing up, it's pretty common now, but, uh, yeah. How would you say that's why, or it's maybe a two part question. Why do you think that has shifted and how do you think that has affected your family and the community that, that shift from almost no one going to now a lot of people are going. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that could be a long answer. Yeah. Um, but I know, you know, one of the things is just access to education and you're right. The sort of assumption that people were making, if you went to college, you're going to increase your opportunities, mm -hmm. you know, and that, wasn't necessarily a message about education that was in my community really until, till recently, you yeah. know, maybe even till the fifties or sixties, but when the workforce started to move from the trades into information and science and technology over time, um, I think there was an expectation that your opportunities became increased if you you had you could always fall back on the trades or you mm -hmm. could always you know do something that didn't require college necessarily yeah um, okay so did did you go to trade school when you were younger or? no no but that that was in my family so every yeah. everybody you know saw themselves as taking up a trade mm -hmm. um yeah that reminds me of the uh you, you needed some help working on the longhouse. Did that ever, did you ever get that sorted out? Or? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of the things you, um, you know, like we probably, I don't know if you did, but I took shop in high school. Yeah. Um, and so even just having a dad who was a carpenter, um, was a huge asset in terms of basically being able to use tools. Yeah. And, um, 
So for, for the last 10 years or so, I've been working on this longhouse restoration project at, uh, at the state fairgrounds. It's really a, it's a replica longhouse. It's not built, you know, using the original technology. So, uh, we're using steel and, and tools where we, where we have to, um, but, uh, no, the short answer is I never repaired the roof this year. Mm, okay. And it makes me think a lot about indigenous technology um, and science because every winter I go back there and I look at the snow load after a big snowstorm of like three foot of snow on the roof of that longhouse and think they had some pretty serious technology back then to, to bear the weight of that, that snow. Um, yeah. Just using bark. And, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Work. Without iron or steel tools, right. without machines, it's, yeah. uh, I mean, even with that stuff, it's pretty hard work. So It is, and, you know, there's kind of a hybrid at Ganondigan, which is another state historic site down the road near Rochester, New York. Um, and we benefited from uh, a big project they had to replace their roof there. Um, mm-hmm. So they did use hickory, and uh, we helped strip the bark, and then they actually donated several, um, several dozen hickory poles and some, some bark uh, for the lashing because it's it's all about lashing and cordage. You know, when you're building a structure like that, it's how tight is the knot and how flexible is the is the wood um, and pliable is the bark. So these are all kind of like physics questions too you know materials and strength questions Mm -hmm. wow so with the with the cordage there's some archaeological findings where they have cordage that's like this big i mean i'm showing here like it's not quite a foot thick but damn close to being like a foot thick piece of rope and they would use it out in the whaling communities and along the coast Mm. and they made it out of cedar i believe cedar bark mm-hmm. i might be wrong on that but i'll check later and i the first time i heard about that i thought what the heck would they i mean what would you use that for and uh, and it was all hand woven too mm. so but i mean it looked like a like a um, like an industrial piece of rope so it's uh, it's quite amazing what pe- the ingenuity that people have and now in the modern world we have we take for granted so many things that were so important back in the old days, like cordage, being able to make cordage from plants. Now we just use it. And I know back in my community that once rope came and iron pots, things like par fletching and knowing how to make cordage almost completely disappeared within like a generation. Mm. And I think that also speaks volumes about how adaptable indigenous people are. And that we're not always tied to tradition and and the, that culture under a glass concept. And that it's really how you use those things and the values that go with those practices that seem to make the biggest difference more so than like the fact that you might be using a knife versus a steel knife versus a chert or a, a, an obsidian knife. And, but what's interesting, though, is the values change when you use different tools. Mm. Kind of like how people are so tied into computers and technology now, we've forgotten the value of sitting in under a tree reading a book, which you're still gaining information, you're still expanding your awareness, but in a completely different way. And I'm I'm really curious to see how technology and culture and values are all how they shift over the years. And so, 
Did you notice that when you were in when you were navigating academia, that that shifted that your ability to translate your cultural values and your the the practices into that setting from where how you grew up. Yeah, and I I think the same thing is you know as Western science is a tool in mm-hmm. the same way that a that a zip tie can be a tool instead of cordage. Yeah. Um, and so I always think about a couple of things, again, going back to what the old people talk about and s- still talk about is, um, you know, they, they would look at you using a, a steel hammer or, you know, a, a power tool or of some kind and they'd say, well, you know, grandpa would have used it if he had that, you know. So you think back to people who, you know, all of a sudden there's these brass kettles Mm. think about how important and jamie jacobs from from uh seneca country has a great program on how the brass kettle changed people's lives uh, because you didn't have to find and source out important clay um, that then you had a culture around of people creating clay pots and firing clay pots and using them to cook you could literally pick up a brass kettle and carry it for a hundred miles. Um, and you have all the implements you need in a new village, um, you know, to cook, to eat. Um, so I always think about that, you know, that sort of litmus test about technology. Well, would grandpa have used this if he had it? Hmm. Um, but I know this change in culture and this, sometimes we're unaware of, not just uh, you know our cultural values changing, but um, even our physical and biological and chemical uh, cultures, if you will, changing as well. Because I heard from this old guy one time. I think he was from Onondaga, maybe maybe Tonawanda, and he said, "You know, when people got really." Week when their body started changing is when we began accepting metal um, into our communities. And he, and he said the reason is that before everything was stone and wood. Mm-hmm. Those were our hardest substances. And so you actually had to create these tools with stone and wood. And there was a whole energetics thing that he was trying to explain to me, basically saying that we were much stronger. The physical force that you had to apply to these tools without breaking them and then repairing them and then making new ones was completely replaced by a metal tool that essentially was indestructible. Yeah. Um, And so he said people changed then, their bodies changed when metal came into communities. Um, And and that was really reflected by, by Jamie's great work with the brass kettle and just looking at changes even in relationships between women and about who was making the pots and the designs they were using, the effigies around the rim, the cordage that was used for cord wrap pots um, in this part of the world too. So Hmm. um, I think about that a lot in terms of today's technology and my kids are on their phone, you know, or on a tablet. I think back to those kinds of discussions that must have been happening in our communities about metal, about brass kettles, um, about whether grandpa would have used it or not, you know? Yeah. 
Wow, that's a really good point. It gets me thinking a lot about this. So there, there's actually there's a field in anthropology that studies this, and it's, it's called biocultural anthropology. And there's some literature out there that talks about this exact concept, how the changing and shifting of technology affects biology and our evolution. And that over long periods of time, it really did have very profound impacts on mm-hmm. our physical stature, on our biochemistry. And that gets me thinking even further back about how fire and just using stone tools, how that affected our gut and how that affected our jaw structure and all these different things and our ancestors, what that did. And it's tough to to like project into the future. What are, what are, is the internet? Mm-hmm. Things like this. What's that going to do to our cognitive evolution? And I don't know. <laughs> I have no clue. It could, I could definitely see it going in a positive direction for sure. But I can also see us becoming like, what would it be like the matrix? All connected to the point where we can't even distinguish the real world anymore. Whoa. That's deep. Yeah. <laughs> and who knows? Who knows these things? Maybe we're already there. Maybe we're already there and this is we're just a simulation or we're maybe our future selves are simulating the past selves and we're the simulation. And it's so realistic. It's so complex that the simulation can't even distinguish between the simulation and reality. And in, I mean, we're already doing that. We're already creating simulations that are getting more and more complex and maybe that's like the whole aim of life is to simulate the universe and create more universes. And that's, that's pretty deep. Who, who knows? That's, that, that's like one of those ancient philosophical problems. Like you don't know if you're just a brain in a vat somewhere or if you're actually physically here and there's no way to actually confirm or deny that, which is kind of scary. But it's also fascinating. And yeah, I, I don't agree. know how to think I about mean, that. I bet people listening right now are fully aware, fully, fully aware with intimate knowledge about where their phone is, hmm. whether it's in their pocket or whether it's on the counter or whether they don't have one because they didn't pay the bill um, <laughs> or whatever yeah. it is. They're very aware of how connected they are to that phone right now. And uh, there's, there's Robin was just saying the other day about, how our cognitive abilities go down the closer the phone is to our bodies um, because we we almost can't stop thinking about it. In fact, I think this is where I know I felt like my phone was ringing or vibrating and it definitely was not mm. <laughs> in my pocket. And it's that, that, that's that shift. That's what you're talking about, that sort of biological, emotional shift that happens when you have a device that is connected to everyone on your person Mm -hmm. Um, because I know if I leave it at home, I'm a little worried, but I forget about it and I kind of have a good day. (laughs) It is. It's it's a blessing, isn't it? Sometimes it is. That's why I I love going hiking, like Mm. multiple day hikes, maybe even five if you can push it there because something magical happens around day four or five where all of a sudden you're like, wow, this is fucking awesome. (laughs) And it, you, it's a, such a visceral feeling and it's not even a thinking type of thing. You feel it in, in your heart and then it's like in your DNA that this is what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. 
And I mean, your hair, you come out, your hair is all greasy and you got sticks in your pocket <laughs> and that you had no idea how they got there. <laughs> but when you then by the time you come out, it's almost like you don't want to go back to the phone until you get back on and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, th- this is kind of nice. Mm. This is pretty sweet. And as you were saying that, I was looking at my phone trying to read, okay, so what, what question do I need to ask yeah, next? And people right now listening are looking at their phone or they're... Yeah, very, maybe listening on their phone. Listening on their phone or very aware of where their phone is. And, you know, I, I think that's the world my kids are going to grow up in. Our, our kids are going to grow up in. You know, mm-hmm. They're going to be fully aware, fully connected. And you're right. What, what, what does that mean? But I agree, getting away in the woods, I mean, that's, it's been interesting taking young Native folks on those trips in the Adirondacks um, Mm. as part of the work I do do here. Um, I mean, there were times where I could see literal panic. Um, And this was three, four, five years ago before sixth graders started having phones commonly. Yeah. You know, and the students were very afraid and they came out. Um, just wanting to keep, they just wanted to keep going. Mm-hmm. They actually said, you know, I wish this trip didn't stop and we could just keep hiking and, and living out here like this. And I said, I, I know what you mean. What you mean? Yeah. That's, that's always a little bit sad because you gotta, I mean, as the adult, you gotta break them back and be like, okay, well, this is awesome. Now, now we can bring these lessons back to our communities and our families. And hopefully that, inspires them to go and do it on their own that's what i hope I, I i think that has happened and um i know that's what happened to me here at esf it was like it was my sophomore year and i met my roommate who said you know we do these trips out in the backcountry for a week at a time we just we bring what we need on a backpack and i thought i gotta try that and i was asking her i remember i said so do you walk on the road <laughs> he goes well no they're not roads they're, tra- they're trails and i said you mean like a four-wheeler trail? You know, uh, like yeah. it was only used to my res, which is basically everything's a four-wheeler trail or up. You know, mm. there's very little foot trails. Mm-hmm. And he said, it's a foot trail. And I was trying to picture in my mind, what does a foot trail look like? It must be tiny and must be so cool to be on something where you don't see tire tracks. Yeah. And I thought... I got to do this. And, and he took me up to the Adirondacks and it was same like fishing at that point. I just fell in love with backpacking and mm. uh, been, a lot of the work we do here is sometimes to take kids on those, on those extended trips. Yeah. What would you say would be the, the most memorable shift that you saw in a young person when they were out there and what maybe brought that about for them? Boy, I got I have to say, I have a lot. I mean, some of them are just comical. Like, I remember the one time we drove down a long stone road to this access point, and you're you're up there. You're, these are gravel roads, and you're driving probably ten miles an hour, fifteen miles an hour for a long time, and you could just see the deer flies swarming around mm. the van. And you could see the fear in everyone's eyes, thinking <laughs> we're going to get out of yeah. this van. And hike for three miles to where we're sleeping outside. And everybody did. We just sat at the trailhead. (laughs) Nobody opened the door. Finally, I I said, well, it's now or never. And we all got out. And within an hour, 
nobody was talking about deer flies. It, you know, I mean, they were partly attracted to the movement and the probably the CO two or something from the cars, but or carbon monoxide. But anyway, they their attitude shifted. You mm-hmm. know, and it, and I said, what will happen is they'll dissipate, they'll die down, and nobody believed that. Including me, yeah. <laughs> thinking, I hope that happens, yeah. but if it doesn't, we're screwed. But you got to stay positive. Man. Stay po- It yeah. was a positive shift in thinking, um, and I mean that was that was one of them. There's been others where you know slept out underneath the stars, and and to have a dark space like the Adirondacks. I think is so underappreciated in terms of its lack of light pollution. Oh yeah, and there are stars you can you'll just never see from the res um, that you can see in the Adirondacks. Mm-hmm. And sleeping out underneath those stars, I think that morning when people woke up, you know, we slept on these big warm rocks near waterfalls on on the Moose River, and uh, yeah, they, they I felt like there was a shift in energy and attitude you know after that night um there, there's so many you know they're they're little moments and I, sometimes we can't see them right i mean i know i've missed many but the ones that i catch are are really um kind of just a flash in the pan but you know it's it happens quick i think mm-hmm. they're not big long you know events in our lives sometimes they're just yeah small. yeah it's really i totally agree and it often comes as you traverse the space or that very tiny difference between one side of fear and the other side of the fear whatever that fear is coming from like with your story it was the deer flies mm-hmm. or was it deer flies yeah deer yeah. flies yep and they can be vicious for sure. Deer flies, you know, somebody told me once, they said that, you know, they can attack your body, but mostly they're messing with your mind. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and they do. That's what fear is. Fear is just a giant deer fly stuck in your head. <laughs> <laughs> and it feels like, you know, you're so slow. You're just not fast enough and it's just tormenting you and getting out of the way of your hand or a branch that you can't hit them with and over and over and over. And then when you, well, when you smack them and squish them into your hair, it feels real, real good. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Wow. So I know that's probably been some of my favorite teaching experiences throughout my life have been when I've been able to just be there at the right moment to help somebody through that fear, mm. whatever it was, and then see that dramatic shift in such a small amount of time when someone is able to be so afraid of something, go through it and and cha- be challenged and defeat that challenge and that fear and then come out on the other side totally unscathed and have that realization of like, whoa, this is pretty awesome. It's And it's such a small thing to overcome once you've overcome it it seems kind of like i can't believe i was afraid of that yeah and so do you that's what really got me into loving teaching is seeing those really pivotal moments in people and whether they're five or 55 i've noticed that it has just as profound of an effect i think the main difference is is when you're five you have 50 years ahead of you to get to 55 so it's like that shift can draw out for the rest of your life 
Whereas when you're 55, it's more retroactive. Like there's a much different perspective about what that shift means in your life. So in your experience, what would you say is the main thing that got you or led you down the path to become an instructor or a teacher? I guess, uh, I mean, one thing I think that was interesting is that we're such a, um, a, a small number of, in terms of being indigenous, mm-hmm. uh, surrounded by a very large society who knows nothing about us. Yeah. I actually heard somebody the other day start off the lecture by saying, how many nations do you know in the United States? Hmm. Um, and you know, the typical answer is, is if you're raised in upstate New York, you might know the six nations, maybe the five nations here. But the average across most of the U.S., according to this um, the speaker, was around five to seven. If you could name five to seven nations, that includes the Navajo, the the Utes, the Penobscots, yeah. the Chippewa, you know, I mean, just so many different nations – and people are amazed when you say the number is literally right today in the 500s. They have no clue that just in the United States alone, including Alaska, Hawaii, is over 520 summer, 580 nations. I forget how many there are. Yeah. Legally speaking. But, and so I found that that was also kind of a role I like to play is to show that I'm, there are natives out there where we're also human. Um, and, and I always enjoyed talking about that with people who had never met an Indian, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I found myself in a teaching sort of position by default, you know, by mm-hmm. you're essentially a teacher every day to people who have never grown up or never known an Indian. Yeah. And so they're learning just by talking with you and, and I think that's how I ended up in teaching. <laughs> it was just like, no, we don't live in long houses. Yeah. <laughs> we live in houses with electric, you know, and you had to be a teacher. Um, in the high school, nobody wanted to know about Indians. You know, it was just such, it was, it was a weird, probably pretty racist environment, you know, I think in general um, at a lot of our res schools off the territory. Mm-hmm. That's improving quite a bit, but you talk to the guidance counselors from our communities or the students from our communities, they're teaching from the time they're sixth grade, once they leave the res school, you know, or whenever that is. And, um, I just figured, well, if I'm going to do it, I should figure out how people teach. Oh yeah. (laughs) And what are their strategies? And that's a whole journey by itself just to learn how to teach, how to teach. Yeah. Cause it's not, it's not intuitive. It's not. And, and it's not one way, right? I mean, I also learn about white people too. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and they, you know, you know, there's a lot of sharing of information there. You know, it's, I learned from the students as much as probably even, even more than I think I'd like to say I impart to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I think that makes you a better teacher, probably, because you're open to learning from your students. And, you know, 
it's really always focused around where the good hunting and fishing spots are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, that's a little bit of a, da- a little bit of murky water to get into with the avid hunter and fisher. Yeah, sure. I mean, you might tell them, but you're not going to tell them the best ones. Yep. You're not, I don't ever tell anyone my favorite spots. Sure. But I'll be like, yeah, you can go over here yep. and I won't send them down a dead end. Yep. But uh, it's an interesting because even as a teacher with students in college, you can't just inundate them with all the right answers. Mm. They have to figure out some of the right answers on their own. And I know that when uh, I was your TA, in, I always get this mixed up. Is it Indigenous Issues and the Environment? Yes. And the Environment. The very first essay about culture, when they had to describe their culture, mm. over and over and over again, they struggled mm-hmm. big time just to describe that. And the most common answer was, I feel like I don't have a culture. Mm-hmm. And that just blows me away because I grew up very, being very clear about who I am and culturally. And even though there, we're in this melting pot, I was still very clear about that. And so to see, and this is actually something I've been experiencing for years and years is, especially among scientists, I think because maybe they become more aware of some of the historical context and how diverse diversity plays a role in ecosystems and things like that is this notion that in America, it's almost like the melting pot experiment created a culture that's not a culture. But it's such a strange thing to me because I see, I totally see a culture that has developed that's very unique to the United States. And it has a lot to do with value systems. And, but what's also weird though, speaking to your point of 500 nations, is that a part of that value system is that we're all the same. Mm-hmm. We're all, we all share these American values, but that's not true. Mm-hmm. That's totally not true. We definitely share some, but, uh, that, I mean, I don't think I could name all 500. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know for sure I couldn't, I could maybe do, I'd say maybe 30 mm. and that's pretty, that's kind of pushing <laughs> it, I think. And and that would be a extremely high number for anybody in the U S which, you know, I think speaks to the point that we were a problem that went unresolved um, in in the minds of the, the larger public and, and in the minds of the United States government. I mean, we were, you know, we were the Indian problem and the idea was is that we would be erased. And mm-hmm. so you can see that today. Um, we are essentially erased from, you know, education, um, from from the history books, you know, from, yeah, from science, as you're pointing out. Um, and yeah, most of the political discourse going on now also. Yep. That's why it was fun growing up near Canada because we got Canadian radio and TV via the airwaves. There was no internet back then. So, oh yeah. And so there was so much more going on in Canada with respect to natives in terms of not only recognition, at least, that there are these different people that were here first, um, but, you know, just a lot more natives, um, you know, up, up probably per capita than there, there are in the U.S., you know. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, especially like if you were look, to look at the ratio of indigenous to non-indigenous right. people in the population. I'm sure it's, I don't know the numbers, but I can imagine it's quite a bit higher. I would think there. so, yeah. yeah. But I mean, there's also way less people in Canada right. than the United States. Yep. That still blows me away that there's over 300 million people in this country. Mm. We're one of the most populous countries on the planet. I think we're actually the third 
pop, most populous country behind India and China. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating to me because they have so many more people than the United States, but the United States is probably about around twice the size of India and around the same size as China. But China has so much more land mass that is uninhabitable, like mm. the Gobi Desert mm. and Tibet, places where there's like hardly anyone. And But very similar to the United States, they have a plethora of different cultures. And even in either, along the coast, there's the, the Han Chinese in the north, but they've dominated the southern Chinese for thousands of years. And to, I've heard some people even argue that the southern Chinese aren't even Chinese, that they're a very distinct culture in and of themselves. And so I, I often think about that in context, in the context of what we have in here in the United States and that although we're, it's called a nation state, it's very similar to em, an empire, just like what Russia is, or just like China. It's, uh, I don't know if we're ever going to get to the point where we can truly have a cultural melting pot. I don't know if that concept even works this notion of multiculturalism where two distinct cultures existing in the same space and being able to maintain their their uniqueness and their sovereignty what do you think about that do you feel like because that's in the fundamental one of the fun, fundamental principles of multiculturalism or this argument that we need multiculturalism i don't know if it even works like people want it to mm-hmm. yeah well i think Again, I would you make the analogy back to the natural world, which, you know, if we're, we're talking about human beings, that's kind of our original instructions is mm-hmm. to view us as human beings, as a species, as part of the natural world, as part of the environment, as part of Turtle Island, whatever term you want to use for our environment around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you think about like how genetic evolution drives biological diversity, you know, and so you do create very interesting subspecies and, you know, you have changes in the biodiversity. And so I, I think about that, you know, when it comes to cultural diversity, I mean, yeah. it's really, I think the, the, the number you're, or the, the measurement you're looking for when you talk about multiculturalism um, or multicultural societies i guess Mm -hmm. you know so i agree it's sometimes hard to just get two cultures to live side by side but what about a hundred yeah and uh and specific especially in the same space space. the same geographic boundary right i think that's where the problems arise is because you have two different rule sets basically trying to coexist and if we don't agree on the rules there's going to be conflict so and then and then inherently some of those unique aspects of those cultures start to fade away just to resolve the conflicts. That's true, and I think there's probably you know cultural compromise, and that's the evolution of culture, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's not a bad thing. Maybe I'm just being too negative about it. I think it becomes bad when a concept of one or more of those cultures is not based in reality of the land of yeah. that space. Exactly. I totally you know, agree. So if you make up something. You know, they always talk about Easter Island or, you know, some kind of, you know, um, belief system that says, you know, no, uh, rain, sun and air do not feed us. Something else feeds us, you know, and and it it tends to not be based in the land. Mm -hmm. Um, Then then that's where you have an inherent conflict and you're always going to 
you know, kind of have a rub there, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really tough question to to have a complete answer to. Yeah. Because there's so much controversy around even talking about anything along the lines of disagreeing with multiculturalism being a good thing. Often I hear nothing but good talked about it, but I know that with any human idea, there's always a dark side to it. There's always the shadow side to everything we do. And so I, I try to pay attention to that because I think that I think good, but most of the time what I think is good isn't necessarily sure. good for everybody. It might work for me, but unless we hear the things that other people th- believe are good we're not going to really know what's good and bad that's why it's so important to have different sets of opinions be able to engage with each other and so part of why i like the united states and because it's enshrined in the constitution the freedom of speech mm-hmm. and that's such a inherent human right that i don't know if i don't know if the future is even possible in a positive way without that and throughout history that fundamental human right has been trampled upon over and over and over by all these massive systems that inevitably lead to really horrible things. And I know for us, for, for just for, for my culture, it's absolutely important for everybody to be able to have a, a word to, to say in the situation, even if they're idiots mm. <laughs> and they have mm. bad ideas, mm. it's really important for them to talk too because who are we to say what a bad idea is until we hear it? So it's it's a tough situation to be in. And I think that there needs to be more forgiveness of our own inherent lacking of understanding so we can actually begin to understand what's really going on in between all these different groups of people. So that's... And uh, yeah, I, I don't want to talk about that too much. This is a science show, <laughs> not politics. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's kind of the nice thing about this show, the, the Indian science concept, is that they're not really separated not in our cultures. All. Not at all. And for us, if even one person was disagreeing, we would sit there and figure it out mm-hmm. until we can. And it wasn't even about compromise. It was about collaborating, mm-hmm. not compromising. Like, oh, okay, well, if you give me this, then I'll give right. you that. It's really like, okay, well, let's sort this out. Let's hash it out and have these hard conversations until we can agree. I think that's much more collaborative than conflicting as far as working with other people. It's true. I think at the university, you know, we're just so often asked to compare and contrast and Dan Longboat said at one time at a meeting a couple of years ago that it was actually at a food sovereignty meeting and he said why are we always comparing and contrasting and not thinking about cooperating hmm. um, so yeah totally it's not the idea of giving something up for concessions or for future reparations or you know anything like that it's how do you co- cooperate together with these belief systems or with these values or with these worldviews or knowledge systems, whatever it is, you know, and it's about, I think it's about cooperation. Yeah. Yeah. It's not to say that you, you can't just, um, ignore all that and live your life because oftentimes you can live a perfectly constructive, peaceful life and not ever even worry about these things. Mm-hmm. And I think that is another one of the amazing things of, the modern world is that people can live p- 
peaceful, healthy, productive lives without having to worry about, oh my God, am I going to be able to feed my family next Mm -hmm. month? Or am I going to have a house next month? And not to say that don't people don't have those worries because they definitely do, especially in different parts of the world where they're, they're still living in very medieval type conditions under really oppressive governments. And I'm really grateful for what we have in the United States because even as a poor person growing up, I I was rich Mm -hmm. compared to people like in sub-Saharan Africa Mm -hmm. or compared to people in India before they started to develop economically or the Chinese people in the countryside of China and how they were oppressed during the Maoist revolution. So I try to remember that and be grateful for what we have in the United States, not despite of the history, but including that. Like, yeah, the United States did horrible things to indigenous people across the board. And it wasn't just the United States government. It was the citizens also. But I try to remember that they were just doing their best. And maybe they just didn't understand what they were doing and what it was going to actually bring. And at the same time, there's definitely shitty people out there. <laughs> so, and, and it's all, it, it's such, such a complicated issue to like use one brushstroke to, to describe all of this is really difficult. And I don't know if it's even possible. Okay. Yeah. I just keep thinking of what they used to say back home. You know, it's not that we're poor. It's just that we're broke. Mm, I like that. <laughs> and uh, it was like, it was a mindset. It's the same thing with that fear, you know, it, it, it um, you know, to, to see real, real poverty, you know, I don't think most people in the U S including myself have not really been immersed in that yeah. sort of con- that condition, that human condition. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's why people travel the world now. I, I think, you know, and you go and experience other cultures you and, and you you're immersed in them in some way you come back you know and then you you see the person on facebook and then they're just like they're all about like you know some rights of some small country for the rest of their lives that's all they can you know, they're they're mo- motivated so much by seeing this firsthand and thinking about how different and how diverse the world is they can't ignore it you know yeah. going forward and yeah, once your awareness is expanded, there's no going back. Yeah, yeah, and I, I wonder that about like you know I think our awareness was based in place. Mm. Um, I'm sure there were. I always wonder like who were the indigenous explorers? Yeah, you know we celebrate all these global, essentially European explorers. Yeah, but there must have been some dude from. You know, from from the Anishinaabe up in, you know, on the Penobscot River, that just said, "I I need to see the Rockies. I got to head over there and mm-hmm. head it out." And you know, that's yeah. Do you do you guys have stories about about that? For us, we had runners, and we'd send them out, and 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 there's huge like trade. We traded with people down in Central America, and and uh, I don't remember any stories specifically about an individual, but just that it was normal. That that it was normal for us to engage with people all the way across the continent, but the time scale was so different than what we have now, right? Where we can fly across yeah. it in a yeah. couple hours. I mean, imagine that—that that would have taken months, you yeah, know, to walk that. It, maybe weeks if you're lucky, but probably it would occur over seasons, you know. Mm-hmm. And you'd, you'd have to time it right, and you'd have to know 
you'd have to know how to live on the land. I mean, for sure. You're not bringing, yeah. you're not pulling an RV behind you, you know, so you, you've got to know when these plants are, are, are ready to be harvested and, you know, what animal migrations are going on. And <clears throat> that was that land-based knowledge. That Man, you, that must have been so intense to go off like that on your own because, and, and not come back for yeah, years. Yeah. That, that, I can I can barely imagine what that would have been like. Yeah. And I mean, I think the longest I've ever walked at once is like 80 miles. Yeah, that's about what I did. Yeah. As I'm the Northville Placid Trail. And uh, <clears throat> anybody looking to do a great through hike, that's one of the best in the Adirondacks. It, it's not intensive in terms of elevation, but it's some, going through some of the most remote places in the Adirondacks. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think I did seven days and actually it was somewhere around that time. I know I was backpacking and I thought, you know, what I'm doing is actually what my ancestors did all the time. I mean, they might have had a pack basket or some kind of leather pouch or maybe a pack dog or pack horse of some kind, but they would, they have just what they need to survive, you know, and, uh, that's what I want to do is take kids on trips like that, you know, and, yeah. And show them that they can, they can live without a phone in the woods for at least a certain amount of time, you know. And uh, yeah, so I, I know we did that this summer, but we only went for a night or two and a lean-to. But um, hmm. you gotta sometimes build. You know what? In the summer, I prefer lean-tos mm. to like a full-blown tent because it's there's they just I feel like tents get. Too stuffy. They do. And the kids always, you know, it's, we bring them because if it's really bad weather. Yeah. You, yeah. you really, especially the rain from man. a tent. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so every time, you know, they end up staying packed away because people just sleep on the rocks or in the lean to. And mm-hmm. why do we have to haul this, you know, six, seven pound tent along? And Ooh, you're going to be grateful if it starts raining. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we've used them, you know, of course, but you always have to bring them and, you know, but back then it was just shelters constructed from bark and from from plant material. That, uh, yeah, and most of the time you just don't even need anything. Really. Yeah, you need overhang or yeah. you know some kind of hollowed out tree. Um, there's a great painting by Robert Griffin that shows during the. I guess it was really during the Revolutionary War. Um, some of the skirmishes on Canandaigua Lake. And one of the soldiers wrote in their journal, we, we dined in a sycamore tree. And hmm. so Robert Griffin actually took that passage from that journal and recreated it uh, in a painting. And I want to say in that soldier's journal, he talks about either it's either 12 or 20 men being inside that tree eating, eating lunch. Um, wow. And so he kind of tried to picture in his mind how big that sycamore would have to be to fit that many people in it. And he's got a beautiful scene of, you know, sort of big Seneca war canoes parked alongside British boats. And they're, uh, they're eating inside, you know, there's a lantern inside the tree, this massive hollowed out sycamore. Um, it's funny now because wow, that's cool. I'm picture. I I have that picture in my head now. Yeah, check it out. It's it's an interesting painting. But what was it? Who's the painter? Robert Griffin? Robert Griffin, his, and he does a lot of sort of he looks at historical records and then tries to paint, you know, 
really sort of time period stuff, you know, mm. like the appropriate technology and clothing that yeah. people would have had for that. Jeez, time that sounds like a fun way to do art. Oh, like, I know. And even, you know, there's like Mike Galvin over at Ganondigan. I mean, his, you know, and Jamie, they're all going into museums and just sort of saying, we didn't do beadwork like what we're doing now. This is what we did. You know, we did. And, and a lot of them getting back into moose hair embroidery and hmm. and doing a lot of quill work because of course that was our original medium you know that beads the glass beads replaced was quills yeah and uh, and and then that's a whole nother thought process you thinking about is how to accurately know what to gather and how to gather it and the the technology that's being used there. And they're recreating it. It's so cool. They're doing like basswood tump lines, you know, made from basswood bark. Um, What's a tump line? A tump line's like one of those headbands that you put on your head and it's like a big strap. And I think some of them also are part oh. of like burden baskets sort okay. of. But, yeah. the, but the tump line was sort of like this strap and you would carry big bundles of wood probably. Yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah, I know I've seen stuff like yeah. that. I think of it like as a human wheelbarrow, sort of, you know, because, mm. <laughs> you, you know, we must have had to haul so much firewood to stay warm up here and, and even where you're from. Yeah. Firewood. Well, teepees are an extremely thermally, thermically, thermically, thermally, therm, they're, they're really efficient with heat mm. where you, I mean, if you got your teepee set up properly, you really don't need a big fire, a, a very one. small fire. Mm, yeah. Mm. Otherwise it gets too hot. Right. And so I wonder about that sometimes too. How much wood did it take? And I mean, when you're on the high plains, it's not always available. So buffalo chips, that was mm. one of our main sources mm -hmm. of fuel, buffalo chips and cottonwood trees, because that was what we had. And that, that gets me thinking a lot about how the land shapes cultures mm -hmm. and how it's not, I mean, and, and it's the other way too, where the culture shapes the land and it's a feedback loop. And I wonder about how that's affecting modern life and how we've, now we have these global, this global culture, but within the global culture, there's all these small cultures, but we're all interfaced with each other now and we're all communicating and through our social media and through economic systems and all this other stuff. And so I often wonder how that's shaping the global environment and how that shift is shaping this global globalized culture mm. that we have now. Mm -hmm. And so one of my one of the biggest most profound realizations I've ever had in life was doing that and going out and having to pack everything with you where if you don't if you forget it there's no going back because it's going to take longer to go back than it is to just get through to the other end of the hike. And, and then how much you value the small things, the really small things by like the third or fourth day on a really long hike and you got like 70 pounds on your back, just the, the pleasure of being able to have some flip flops <laughs> to walk around camp in that, I mean, I, I never would have imagined that before I did that. So, and, and I know that happened, that's also happened in academic settings too, where I had these big profound realizations and often it came after a, an extended period of suffering mm. or like a really hard challenge. And then you get through the challenge and then you look back on it and there's like a light bulb that goes off in your consciousness 
Well, um, so in your experience in academia or even just on a hike, what would you say would be maybe your, your, one of your biggest aha type of moments mm. where you, this light bulb just came off and illuminated a whole part of life that you weren't aware of? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a big question, I guess. Um, I mean, some of them are definitely more of a intimate sort of spiritual, if you want to call it spiritual or a meditative moment in, 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 you know, outside in, in a situation. Um, I can remember the, the one, the longest backpacking trip I did forgetting to bring sugar. And mm -hmm. so I, everything I had was basically salty. You know, think about how much salt and smoke and dried foodstuffs that we would have been consuming on a trip like that. You know, very little sugar. Now, originally you probably could carry maple sugar. That would have been important for, for our people. But this trip, I didn't pack any. And I just remember I had a little box of raisins. And so that I would take one raisin, almost like a pill, and I'd chew it super <laughs> slow and I'd let it all just dissipate in my mouth and it would taste so sweet. Mm. And, and I kept thinking, I have to make these raisins last for the next four or five days. Um, so I would ration them out and, um, but, but that's what I think at that moment, that's when I realized it's sort of same, same, same issue is do I really need to survive? Like what could I go without? Yeah. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, in, in academia, boy, I, I don't know if I've arrived at that aha moment yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting yeah. for it. Uh, I think it's, I think it's around the corner. Um, but just, you know, I, I, I think in life too, just, you know, the times where, where, people are in ceremony, um, you know, and there's something that happens that you say, Oh, that's why they do that. Hmm. You know, and it's probably because somebody's explaining it to me because it's all done in the language. And there, there's so many of them, you know, and, and, and I could just think of like, well, okay, I see why they're doing it that way. And it's because it was shaped by the land or by some organism or by some system, you know, like a sugar bush, you know, I mean, for us, that's one of the important times of the year. And I, oh, I think about it, I, you know, I, somebody told me once, you know, this, the, the water people are drinking in that ceremony is actually sap. And when I was out with Norton Rickard, who was a uh, he passed away um, a, a few years ago and he told me, he said, uh, you know, just drink this sap, you know, and he had a big barrel of it. It looked just like water. And he said, there's nothing better than just dipping a cup in there and drinking it. And he said, it's, it's a tonic. It, it'll help you. And it just, you know, then that things have like, we've survived the winter, you know, and hmm. it's funny, even this summer, I was doing a program with Tusha Yakovlova, one of the grad students here, and she said the same thing in Russia, but it's with birch. And they view the drinking that birch sap as, oh, thank God we made it through winter and we're alive. And it's just this almost rite of seasonal passage yeah. that happens. And I mean, things like that <clears throat> happen a lot, I think, in academia that you're able to connect on so many different levels and find common 
beliefs about the land even mm-hmm. across continents and um but those would have never have happened if you know I wasn't out there helping collect sap which is just a lot of hard work picking up those buckets and dumping them in and then boiling it and boiling it and a lot of downtime between the aha moments mm. uh, yeah. that's a good point yeah. yeah most of life is not uh-huh. Yeah, it's not glamorous. <laughs> it's more like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, like you say, you realize it later sometimes. Yeah. Like, actually, that's what it is, you know, it it can come to you different, you know, it's like when the when the student is ready, the master will appear. You know mm. what I mean? That's, that's one of my favorite sayings. Um, I don't know who said that. Yeah. I think maybe... I, I don't know. Old Asian adage or something. It sounds like like a Chinese proverb. Yeah, yep. Those Chinese, man, they've been doing things pretty pretty high level for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Including philosophy. Yeah, yeah. And so it's interesting to see them rise to prominence in the Mm. modern world, being one of the oldest continuous civilizations that, I mean, they've only been conquered by outside forces, I think, twice. Wow. By the Manchu and by the, the Mongols. And they were both nomadic peoples that conquered them. Mm. The Manchu were arguably not quite mo- nomadic like mm. the Mongols. But um, it's fascinating to me to see how they're prospering and they still have a very unique Chinese culture. They, they haven't completely shifted their culture to more modern ways or more American or westernized ways like some other, some other Asian countries. And I know that, uh, that that I'm just really fascinated by China. It's true, and I, I mean, I think back to what my dad said. You know, he grew up in a time in the '50s and '60s where everybody was taught, "Do not be communist. Do not, you know, communism is bad. We have to avoid it. We have to attack it and all its roots." Yeah, and, and it's that, interesting. It's working out okay in it, China. Well, but that's the after, shift, right? Because it didn't have a good start. The Maoist revolution is one of the bloodiest things that's ever happened in human history. So, I mean, at what cost, right? Right, right. But also, it's one of the few places on the planet where they kind of indigenized communism mm. and socialism. They they connected it with their culture much more than the Soviets did. Mm. And so I wonder if that's a part of their success, is that they indigenized that economic mm. and political system more so than other places did that weren't so successful but I mean success at what cost? What the the yeah uh, the history of communi- uh, the the history of communism in China is not a pretty one. It's not, but it, it makes all the time I find our own people in our communities asking how did they do it? Yeah, yeah how how come they were successful and you know, uh, the Susquehannocks or the Hurons were not, you know, people who had distinct language groups and cultures that were just rolled over. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and of course you have the material influences, guns, germs, and steel, the Jared diamond sort of explanation for that, that imperialism. But, um, I remember, you know, being in fourth grade, I think is when you first learn about the great wall of China. Yeah. Um, Third or fourth grade, which is very young, I think, for students here in the U.S. to learn about those sorts of things. I wonder what they learn about us in China. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that's I, a good question. I knew that this wall was a the story 
that stuck with me about China. They built a wall, but it was unsuccessful. You know, it was kind of the moral of the story. And, and right away, I just kept thinking, so do we need to build a wall? Like, yeah, th- this was back in like 1982 or something. <laughs> and then to yeah. see this whole thing about building a wall and come up again. And even our communities, there's a big dispute now on the New York State Thruway where the Seneca Nation of Indians is saying, we're just going to put tolls up hmm. at our border. Mm-hmm. And we're going to charge everybody that comes through here. You know, it's essentially kind of a wall in yeah. a way. Then there's these cultural walls that would say, no, we we have to eliminate any hint of Christianity in or any other belief system in, you know, from our indigenous belief systems. You know, like that's another sort of wall. And it made me think all the time about, you know, the issues around doctrine of discovery that have been coming up you know, in the papal bulls and how you started out by sort of saying, well, sometimes people just didn't know what they were doing. They're just goofy. Um, yeah. And then sometimes they did. And sometimes they did. Yeah. And that, I went to a lecture by Steve Newcomb, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And that was his point is that it wasn't so much about belief systems other than the act of domination. You know, and he says it's, it's the domination, which is the key here, not religion or belief systems necessarily but the desire to have dominion yeah Um, it's a very power laden word yes yes and so it's not even discovery and you made that point clear do not talk about the doctrine of discovery what's at issue here is the the dominion the domination um and he had all the latin to sort of the back that up you know from from those original papal bulls but Good questions, you know. I mean, hmm. yeah, China has you know, two billion people. I mean, how do you even govern two billion people? I, I I can't imagine. We have, like you said, three hundred million here, but I know, and we have a hard time with it. <laughs> yeah, we have a hard time here. Two billion people. But that, that's maybe one of the huge differences between Chinese culture and American culture is they don't value individualism like American culture does, mm. and. To the point where they just have an entirely different worldview about the role of people in society. Mm. And so I, I think that's really at the heart of it and maybe why socialism worked out there. Mm. I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on Chinese yeah. culture. So don't get me wrong on that. But <laughs> yeah. I, I, I definitely have strong opinions, yeah. which I like to think that I hold very loosely. Yep. And in this part of the world, we have a culture that exists that is kind of under the radar it's been maintaining what seems to be fairly orthodox beliefs and ways of life and they seem pretty successful too and that's the the amish and the mennonite communities Hmm. and it's so funny every time there's a conversation in our communities about getting back to the land somebody brings up the amish or the mennonites and say well, they're doing it. You know, they're doing exactly. They're off. They're getting off of fossil fuels, and they're they're educating their own kids. They don't send them to public schools, and you know, they they have a relationship with the land, and they're doing timber and and cattle, and you know. And again, I think I think back to what some of the older people say during those conversations, and they say it's because of their strong faith. 
mm. in their beliefs. Yeah. It's the only thing that allows them to do that. It's not having land. It's not having a, a legal or political framework to exist in necessarily. It's just they're so strong in their belief system that that's priority and their belief system says you're going to live this way. And, and, and so they do it. And yeah. And then you get to wondering where does that belief system come from? Where does it arise from? And just my understanding of this topic and what's been studied on it is that they come from stories mm. and it doesn't even matter what culture you're coming mm. from. That's where our values and our beliefs come from our stories. It's not the other way around. We don't create stories based off of our values the values and beliefs come out of the stories. And then you wonder, well, where do the stories come mm. from? The land. Mm. That's, that's the way I see it is they mm. come from the land. They come from our experience and, and our, and the learning that happens between us as individuals, but also us as a collective and that engagement between the land and the water and the plants and the animals and how that affects us. And then often I, I know this is true for everyone I've asked is, when you think back on your life, do you view it as a set of discrete situations, set a set of discrete moments that happened to you or something that played out? Mm. It seems more like a story, like mm -hmm. we're each living a story. And that's how human cognition works, Is especially in ancient times, before there were these dominant religions, that's how people viewed reality, was that we're living out this story. Mm. And so there's a narrative in every story and there's characters and there's plots. And I mean, there's all this stuff that goes into that. And it's fascinating to me that even after thousands of years, that's still how people think. Mm. And I know that that's one of the things that got me to really nail down how I want to live my life is I started thinking of my life as a movie and like, well, if it's a movie and I'm the main character, what kind of movie do I want this to be? <laughs> a horror this, movie? Yeah. <laughs> horror movie, a romantic Drama, comedy. Rom-com. Yeah. <laughs> and I try to include as much cheesiness in it as I can because life can be so dreary sometimes if you let it. Yeah. And being able to key into the cheesy, funny stuff, I think it's really important. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's what makes a good story, right? Somebody exactly. who tells like a really dull, long, drawn-out story, you're just like... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it makes me think now of, you know, the term Dr. Kimmerer, who, who, you know, become, her writing has become very popular and people, people are really have woken up or gotten woke, I guess. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so in some cases, who had never, never thought about plants and, and indigenous culture. About this term restoration, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that's, that's consistent then with, you know, about finding strong faiths and beliefs in the land is stories about the land. Yeah. And there's a lot of support for that notion in all sorts of different disciplines in the literature. It's true. Like even the, the, the whole situation with Onondaga Lake here in Syracuse, you know, and uh, the, the story of, it's a story of, of degradation and complete um, misuse of the environment. Yeah. And, and in fact, probably intentional poisoning of the environment to today, which is, you know, we're, we're going to remediate that and we're going to turn it into something else. And then people start to say the same question. What, what's the story? Where, where is the story going? 
mm-hmm. you know, with the lake. What do you mean something else, something different? And, and what part of the story are you returning to? Yeah. And, and then what, what role do I play in this story? What role do I play? Right. Yeah. Because if you don't play a role, you're not going to be at all motivated or interested in doing anything about the lake. You know, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. So that's, that's a great uh, idea that, uh, and even our own teachings, right? They're stories. Like people talk about the great law of peace mm-hmm. as, and even in the, there was an interesting movement back in the, you know, a hundred years ago or so where the settler economies and governments were saying, well, if you want to govern yourselves, where is your law? We want to see your law. And they said, well, it's in this wampum belt. It's in, it's in this story. I said, well, that's not law. You know, that's, you need to have very specific laws that are numbered and are ordered in order of priority. And, you know, like, you should not murder, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, and like commandments in a way. That's, that's really funny and slightly, well, I don't know if that's ironic or just hypocritical, but because where did they get those laws? Well, exactly. And for Haudenosaunee, it was, it was more of a, the, the conveyance or system of governance that was an expression of the law. And so people in Canada, actually, there were, there were some folks, older people that were, they thought the solution then was to turn the great law of peace story into a law mm. and then actually wrote out a numbered system of laws that were ba- and and actually over time people became a little confused thinking that the great law of peace was that there were statutes to that mm. you know and that there are very specific instructions about what you do in a specific circumstance and in fact that's when when you go and listen to it, it's not at all what's happening. It literally is a is a seven day story. It just starts at the beginning, goes all the way to the end, and it's it's a story. There's no point in time where you know there's very specific instructions necessarily. There's quotes <clears throat> about what people did at that time faced with a certain situation. But it's not law in that Western sense, yeah. you know, and and I think sometimes our indigenous people are thinking about our stories from a Western perspective in a way. Yeah, and I know I do it. I do it too. Yeah, I, I want to know like specifically what do I do in this situation. Don't tell me a story, Dad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I need tell ten me what bucks to do. right now. <laughs> Don't tell me a story about how you needed 10 bucks when you were a kid and what you did. <laughs> but that's, yeah. that's what happens. Yeah. And that, the, the funny part about that is by hearing that story and then living your story and having that story to compare it to, that's how you find out what to do. Exactly. Yeah. And so, huh, that's, that's a really interesting yeah. way to look at it. And so, so we, we've talked a lot about all sorts of different <laughs> things, but I'm, I'm really curious how, how you view indigenous people and the role we're going to play in the human story going forward because we're we're living in a global culture now where we can definitely have an impact on the global society depending on what we do and uh, how we're perceived yeah i mean i think that's such a common question now um you know what role will indigenous people play in stewarding the earth and getting us off this train wreck that we're on um 
you know, and for, for the only thing I could speak to is, you know, what my experience and my stories have been with my mm-hmm. culture. Um, there's definitely a, a, a strong sort of prophecy, if you will, or, a um, an important moment in time that people talk about in our communities. And that is someday the world will, we will speak to the world. And people actually thought that that was probably in 1975 uh, when the Haudenosaunee sent a delegation to Switzerland, to Geneva, Switzerland. And uh, so I, I grew up with the, his name was Nega Hawatha, but his, um, his English name is Stuart Patterson. He was actually my uncle on my mother's side. And uh, he went to Geneva and he just had all these stories about going to Geneva and what happened there in 75. And, and from that came this book, a basic call to consciousness. And and that was the message they delivered is we have to change our consciousness Hmm. about these issues. And I think that's really the dominant role that indigenous people can play. Yeah. Should they play it? Who knows? It's up to that community and culture. Uh Right. Um, but there definitely seems to be some, you know, conscious elevating methods and ideas shared across indigenous communities that I don't think ha- it can be ignored much longer. Um, and for us, it's this interrelation, this interrelatedness of the environment, you know, that everything has its own duty. We call it duties and obligations so insects have their own duties and obligations humans have our own duties and obligations the trees the fungus you know the waters they all Mm. have these duties and obligations and all we're doing is trying to ensure that they can fulfill those duties for the what dan longboat calls it for the continuation of life that's really, you know, and it speaks to kind of this really crazy argument now about like, what's the purpose of life? Why are we constantly trying to seek the survival of our genes? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, yeah. you get into those conversations and that's a tough one, but I think that's one element of in, that indigenous people can play is to, to change people's consciousness, their worldview about the environment. Um, and I think you see that playing out with, you know, the rights of the Klamath River, uh, the yeah. rights of Lake Erie, the personhood of non-human beings. And yeah. uh, that's speaking to their duty and their obligations they have. Um, and I think that's even represented in our languages, like just the way we structure pronouns about when we're talking about something uh, animate, inanimate, male, female, you know, there's so many different pronouns that sometimes make us as individuals part of something collective. And, yeah. that, and that's kind of done with a pronoun in a way, mm-hmm. like the basic building blocks of our relationship between nouns and verbs in, in Haudenosaunee languages in the so yeah, it's expressed in our language, it's expressed in our, our ceremonies, our, our way of life, that consciousness that everything has an obligation and a duty. And it's our job not to impede that, but to, to make sure that they can fulfill their own duty 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. But I know some people want, you know, well, they're going to show us how to do this specific ceremony and yeah. we're all going to change uh, on Monday, October 13th. And But there's going to be a rollover period, so if you didn't get, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you didn't get the first round, yeah. <laughs> we're coming back for the second tour. Um, I, I think that's what a lot of non-Indigenous folks, maybe they're hoping that would happen. <laughs> and right, like Castaneda talks about that in the role of the shaman. It's like, you can try to do it the short way, but it's the long way that's more sustainable, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that's where consciousness changes. You talked about this earlier. It's very often not like this one sliver of time. It's a collection of moments mm-hmm. over long periods of time often. And then, then there's a moment where they all come together. Yep. And there, that, that is that same famous or popular saying, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, And that's very true. I think especially with this and the role that indigenous people can play. And in a, in a certain sense, because of our relation to all of life and to the universe and creator, it is one of our duties to step up and to play that creative type of a role mm. in society and I don't think that can happen by instituting, I'm using air quotes here, mm-hmm. instituting the change by forcing people to change and saying, this is the law now. Right. You have to do it this right. way because consciousness doesn't quite work like that. Often what will happen in that situation is you'll, they'll go the opposite way mm. until they were like, wait a minute, there's a brick wall in this direction. <laughs> Maybe I should go this other way where there's a river that's going to take me out of this situation. And learn to swim with the current against instead of against mm. it. And I see that happening all around us right now where people are crying out for changes there and they see the need for those changes, both in environmental degradation and pollution issues, as well as political issues and these different dynamics playing out on the political stage. That's the primary theme that I'm seeing is we need change. We need change. And it's a dangerous game to play to to try and force change mm. instead of like the you like Carlos Castaneda mm-hmm. said it has to unfold and the consciousness will change with that unfolding of the story yep. and that requires listening to each other and understanding each other before we condemn each other. Yep. Doesn't mean we can't condemn, <laughs> but that has to come last. Right. That has to come later. And it's, but it's easy to condemn. It's easy to criticize. And And it's it's easy, yeah. It's easy to try to hope for that instant, instantaneous change, you know, and and I think a lot of people are holding out for that. And, you know, this, it ain't going to (laughs) happen. It's not going to happen. Yep. It'll it'll be a collection of small, instantaneous changes. And that's, you see that with energy. Like, there's no silver bullet. We're not going to get everything from solar. Yeah. Yeah. Or geothermal, or you know, we're not going to get geothermal is a cool idea, but it, it's not going to it's not going to solve everything. Yeah, and some of these technologies, you know, we we should have been investing oil into their creation. Yeah, a hundred years ago, um, or even fifty years ago, would have been better than where we're at now. So, you know, we have a finite amount of fossil fuels left to try to do that, make that conversion. And and also to make it 
from a cultural perspective, you know, is is what they call it, as as a just transition. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as yeah, you know, I, I I think about that a lot about fossil fuels and what the third world countries that are trying to pull themselves out of poverty, what are they going to do? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a tough question. Yeah. It's a really tough question, and can't answer it unless we talk, right? <laughs> yeah, it's true, and yeah, we all have to learn from each other. Like I said, it was cool to hear Tusha talk about birch sap. Yeah, and, and that was, is really cool. I thought, well, should, and that's should almost probably, the opposite side of the planet. Yeah. But it's the same latitude, which is also interesting, hmm, you know, yeah, to think about point. that and, but very similar plant communities and, you know, maybe the answer will be, I'll be drinking birch sap soon, you know, because that shared exchange, um, yeah, or you or you'll get shipped off to Russia. <laughs> yeah, and have to and have to drink yep. that. Yeah, like, we got to get rid of this guy, man. He's too smart. <laughs> He's talking about too many things. <laughs> yeah, he must be silenced. <laughs> well, with that being said, uh, I we really like to ask all of our guests that come on the show to what would your three tips to be indigenous in the modern world be and. I like to use that word indigenous fairly openly, and I, I feel like that's going to be one of the messages we can bring to the world is that we can all be indigenous or work towards that in some way or another. So for indigenous people listening or for people that identify as being not indigenous, what would your three tips for to be indigenous in the modern world, what would those be? Well, I'm going to tell some stories about. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I, I, I do think that <laughs> yeah. they all come from stories. Yeah. I mean, you know, and one is like when it's just this inherent sort of numbers issue in terms of being less than the greater population. You know, be, being a being a very small demographic. If you're if you're using the term indigenous just even thinking about the non-indigenous society and worldviews around you that came from like sports, which is, you know, basically my dad told me, you know, don't ever depend on the ref. Um, you have to work, you have to clearly win as an indigenous person. You, you, you if it's close, you're, you're going to lose. And so I think it's like we hear from a lot of minority and underrepresented communities in the modern world. That is, you got to work hard. <clears throat> you got to work almost twice as hard, you know, mm. as somebody, as the non-indigenous sort of worldview is working, you might say. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think that's important. So you got to work twice as hard gets back again to sort of building stuff and working with my dad on, uh, on, I remember working, putting together a deck on our house for a summer and man, was that hard work. And he was doing it after work with me and I was complaining about how hot it was. And I was helping him cut some of the two by sixes, which were not cheap back then, you know, in the late eighties, um, especially treated lumber at that point. But I screwed up, one of the cuts and uh, he basically said, you know, you have to measure twice and cut once. You Hmm. you always have to measure twice. And so I think that's another, Wow, that's a cool quote. Yeah. And I just saw it on a guy's shirt. He went to a shipbuilding program. Like they build wooden ships and that's what his instructor's number one thing was, is 
measure twice, cut once. Mm. And, and I think that's something indigenous folks ought, ought to, to, you know, is to consider the measurements, you know, understand what, what we're measuring specifically and double check it over and over before we decide that it's not something we need or want or should have right now. Mm-hmm. Um, a third, so, I mean, you, you got to have fun. <laughs> mm. You know, that's... You, I like that you, one. You got to have that's fun. You got to be able to joke with each other. Yeah. It's just, it's not worth it if it's, there's nobody laughing, you know, and like, you you got to be able to, got to be able to bust on each other, <laughs> you know, but in a good way, um, as they say, and um, just make sure that, you know, a lot of, our self care is is about laughing, you know, and and uh, willing willing to just bust into that belly laugh for minutes on end is is <laughs> is part of that yeah. our way of healing, our way of uh, health, maintaining our health, you know. Yeah. And uh, I just did that with my family back home. My dad had his seventieth birthday party, and I mean, there's just more, you're just crying with laughter at the family table, you know, just. Whatever it is, so many funny. I could start laughing right now about what happened there, but um, that's so important, and it's not mm. often they don't tell you that at, in the modern world. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and it can be really tough too, especially in when you're grinding away at college and you're spending day in and day out on your studies, and you don't have a chance to go and hang out with people. And maybe sometimes you go hang out with scientists and maybe (laughs) they don't have the best sense of humor sometimes. And so getting that really deep gut laugh can be challenging. It it might not come sometimes. And I notice after two or three days, if I hadn't had a laugh that hurt my belly, (laughs) I start feeling it deep, deep inside. And so often I've learned how to make, get myself laughing and think, try to just think of things funny and, or, or I often laugh at myself mm. and I catch myself thinking something like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't even make any sense, man. And and I'll get myself laughing. So it's, yeah, that's a really good tip. I think laughter is going to help so much bring people together. Yeah. Every serious moment I could think of in like, whether it's a civil war that we had in our communities over gambling and cigarettes and gas, or whether it's like, you know, a serious issue, political issue coming down the pike that's going to try to erase our memory. And there's been these really hilarious jokes through all of that process. Mm. And I can think of them in my mind and I'll start dying laughing if I think about them too much right now. But some of them were just, just hilarious um, and sometimes inappropriate. So, you know, I get a I can't repeat them on the air. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the best ones. man. And so we do have explicit content with each one of our episode releases (laughs) because I mean, I just can't help it. I really like to use cuss words sometimes, Oh yeah, but I notice I say them too much. (laughs) You're not not compared to, you know, of course. Yeah. Or too much relative to what my ideal, because they they can have a lot of power if you say it at the right time in the right context. And sometimes you just need them yeah. to be able to communicate what you're trying to communicate. Right. Yep. And so uh, if you did want to share one of those dirty jokes, 
Well, no, I don't know if you want to put this in the podcast eventually. We're not, are we live or no? Oh, okay. No, it's not live. Well, we're we're no, no, not live. okay. Well, it's just it was funny. I just <laughs> I remember we're at a meeting about the doctrine of discovery, and Oren had just met this guy Steve Newcomb. Mm-hmm. He, he when they went to Italy. In the 90s, he flew over there somehow, and he was just so motivated about these papal bulls. He was studying Latin, and he was reading the. He was going to the Vatican to find the original copies, oh. and he was getting into this notion of domination. That sounds like some Indiana Jones stuff. It, right it there, was, man. yeah, it was, and you know, and he talked about you know, kind of growing up angry and confused about why we we're being erased and. Um, and Orton was talking about, you know, how he came in with this big stack of papers and he was just some crazy dude with a ponytail and like, <laughs> yeah. oh man, who's, what are you talking about the Pope for? I'll, you know, we're here at the UN and we're trying to, we're trying to get national, you know, in, international status as nations at the United Nations. We need to be considered right, have a seat that says Haudenosaunee right next to the U.S. and Canada mm. we sit at the U.N., mm-hmm. which has has not happened. All 500-some nations do not have sort of member – they're not member states of, of the United Nations. Um, and that's something they've been fighting for for so long. And here's this guy that says, well, one of the reasons is because of this – um, because of the papal bulls and because of this doctrine of discovery that's built into federal law. He said, that's going to prevent you not only from being recognized at the UN, but in your own country, in mm. on the land that you live on because these court decisions. Yeah, and that's, that's really interesting. So Oren says, you know, or somebody says, you know, we need a, and it was a very serious moment because we had just discussed religion and, and the impacts of, colonization on you know federal indian law and we're going through this hot and it's i just remember it was like we're i was ready for lunch i just knew that and somebody says we need a position we need a position on this and one of the seneca chiefs goes you you mean like the missionary position (laughs) 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 and I could not I could not keep a straight face for the rest of the day. I would look at that chief and he said and he you know just he was a jokester. He all yeah. he did was crack jokes. That seemed like his role was to crack jokes at every meeting and that was one of hundreds that he would have at these meetings and I can't every time I was just listening to Steve at the lecture I kept thinking of Darwin cracking that joke and <laughs> Everybody laughed, and, um, and somebody, and I think some people were kind of offended. Maybe, yeah, the <laughs> best jokes, man. Someone's gonna get offended. And oh man, I, I tell that story all the time, and I still see him as I go, go out west, uh, Seneca territory. I'll see him, and it brings a smile to my face every time. Hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the only colonization joke I have. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, there's so many layers to that, too. I know. <laughs> and it got deeper and deeper as the meeting went on. And I'm thinking, oh. <laughs> and you think I, back to that. I got to go because I'm just, I'm not, I'm of no use here. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, comedians play such an important role in society, not just for the laugh factor, but there's a lot of philo- deep philosophical mm, stuff oh, yeah. in there. Yeah. About like, whoa, that, I mean, there's so many layers of. 
history and philosophy embedded in that because yeah. the the things we laugh at are usually some of the darkest things. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're related to grief, right? People talk about that relationship yeah, that yeah. one way of coping with grief is 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 through comedy and through through laughter and mm. uh, some of the funniest people say the funniest crap at the at the most worst times. Yeah. <laughs> and they're often some of the most troubled people too. Mm, mm. The, the funniest people mm. often inside are hurting sometimes mm-hmm. the most. Mm. And there's this old Greek story about Pagliacci, the clown. You ever hear that mm. one? And well, this, so there's this, this, uh, this guy, this philosopher that came to town and he's teaching about happiness and, and all these people, they all gathered around him and they'd come one at a time asking about their problems and how do they figure them out? How do, how do I become happier? And so after a while, about midway through the day, a guy came up to him and he says, look, I'm, I'm miserable. I just can't figure out how to get over my anxiety. And I wake up every day with the sense of doom and I just can't get over it. And I can't seem to pull myself out of this deep sadness I'm in. And well, this, this philosopher said, you know what? Laughter is very powerful. It's one of the most powerful medicines that we have mm. as people. And there's this clown here in town. His name is Pagliacci. You should go see him. He can help you laugh and help you get through this. And the guy dropped his head. And then when he looked up, he said, I am Pagliacci. Mm. Mm. And that is, yeah. it's a sad story, but it, there's so much truth in it. And I think not only do they serve an important role, but it's a big sacrifice that comedians make because they got to deal with the offended ones yes and that's yeah. tough man yeah. i i can't imagine being a stand-up comic these I days know. that'd be really hard i i love stand-up comedy i've been you know and you're exactly right they, they talk about the burden they carry often mm-hmm. um, and something you don't think about because just too busy laughing yeah uh, with them or yeah. at them or and the greatest ones are the most controversial ones like george carlin <laughs> oh yeah he was not politically correct <laughs> at all but he's got to be one of my favorites <laughs> yeah. of all time yeah he's got some great stuff yeah. yeah well thank you for coming on oh yeah it was it was a lot of fun <laughs> it took many turns out I, I didn't expect and i'm really glad that you shared that joke that's that's a really good one so if you don't mind i'm gonna keep that in yeah i guess and it wasn't too bad that's that's pretty uh soft core All as correspondence far as goes to logifixico at indigenous science yes yes if you are offended i'm more than happy to hear about it and uh, if not then i'm more than happy to hear about that too so if you want to find our show, we're available on all the podcast platforms. You can go to Pod, uh, Podient. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. All anywhere you look, even Spotify. And our website is www.indianscienceshow.wordpress.com. And Indian Science Show is just spelled N D N S C I E N C E S H O W dot wordpress.com. And I almost always have to like really think closely how to spell that. So just remember NDN, Science Show, and you can Google that and find us. And leave us a review. That really helps helps us understand if we're doing a good job or if we're not doing a good job and what direction that we want to take the show in. And again, thank you, Neil, for coming on. We'll catch you on the flip side.